Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Meg Mundell. Meg Mundell is a writer and an academic. Her debut novel, Black Glass, garnered much acclaim, including an Aurelius shortlisting, and today she's joining me to discuss her latest novel, The Trespassers. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians, their ongoing connection to the land, stolen land, land that was never ceded. On Final Draft, we explore the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture, and it's featured on 2SER every week. Now, on the Great Conversations podcast, we've got a chance to hear more of these discussions, outtakes, fun moments, things that just don't make it to air. Now, the trespassers. As across the UK, people jealously guard their clean bill of health in order to leave England's shores and search for work in Australia. A group of passengers board the Steadfast, and protesters line the docks denouncing the men, women and children as traitors for abandoning their infected country. On board the ship, the passengers settle in for the long month journey to Australia, dreaming of the possibilities that await them in this new and healthy land. All proceeds with interminable regularity until a crew member is found murdered in the early dawn. The only witness is a young boy who's been silenced by fear. Join me as we discover Meg Mundell's The Trespassers. I've got a new book for you. I am very happy to be joined on the line by Meg Mundell. Meg is a writer and academic. Her debut novel, Black Glass, garnered much acclaim, including an Aurelius shortlisting. And today she's joining me to discuss her latest, The Trespassers. Welcome, Meg. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here on Final Draft. Thanks, Andrew. It's nice to be here. Now, I want to introduce people to The Trespassers because... This book, ah, it takes us on board the steadfast. From across the UK, people have jealously guarded their clean bill of health in an effort to leave England's shores in search of work in Australia. The country is a biohazard of disease. Airports are locked down and radical groups would have the borders shut. On board the ship, though, the days proceed with interminable regularity until a crew member is found murdered in the early dawn. The death is a grisly puzzle. For who would have the motive to kill? And then passengers begin falling ill. So safe to say, I, I feel like I might have freaked out a few people as I introduced that because it feels <laughs> it feels really close. Like we're one super bug away from this story, but we are firmly in the realm of speculative fiction here, at least at the time of recording. Mm, I think so, but it is, it is close. What I really like to do um, when I write is to make, I, I guess it's speculative, but I want to make it very, very close now because that's where you get the interesting effect of the familiar and the strange side by side and that can be thrilling and unsettling in a really interesting way I think for the reader and also for me as a writer it's fun to write like that. There is so much that is the familiar and the strange, and I feel like we'll, we'll come back to it, but I also have to note in writing and, and talking and reading this book in Australia in the current political climate, I think the familiar yet strange would also be a discussion about people on a boat fleeing somewhere who are predominantly Anglo-Celtic. We, um, we have a tendency in this country to demonise people on boats, but mm. we also have a way of othering them. And, and mm. this, this group of passengers are, are very close to the, the critics that we meet every day. 
Yes, that was that was fairly deliberate. I mean, the, the three main characters, their their ethnicity is never specified, but you there there are clues that you pick up throughout the book. Through you know, I do mention uh, tones of skin and different points. So the three main characters are easily read as being white, uh, but the ship, all the people on the ship, it's a, a multicultural mix, which pretty much represents our world today. So, you know, we have a doctor who's black, he's of Afro-Caribbean uh, extraction. We've got, uh, you know, it's a, it's pretty representative of the population. But you're, you're absolutely right, this demonisation is a really interesting thing and Australia has such a peculiar and conflicted relationship to outsiders, which is very, very weird if you think about it because apart from the Indigenous people who have been here for tens of thousands of years, all of us, uh, or our relatives, our close relatives, came here from elsewhere, and many of them came on ships and boats. So I've also drawn inspiration from the past. Uh, 200 years ago, uh, well, 200 years before the story takes place, another ship, a real ship, called the Ticonderoga, set sail from Liverpool, where my characters live from, and headed to Melbourne, full of migrant workers. And things went horribly wrong, in quite a similar way as, as they do in the story. So I guess I've tried to mash up history and now, and then to launch it slightly into the future. One of the things that I found was so incredibly successful about this book, because... I mean, it's got to be a risk putting people on a death ship. It's got to be a risk, you know, skirting so close to issues that are, are both, as you say, familiar but strange. Is the way you tell this story through the three main characters, Cleary, Tom and Billy. I wondered if you could give us a brief introduction to them because they, they make this book. Oh, yes. So we've got the three characters and as we're reading, we hop between their viewpoints. Uh, each chapter is divided into three. So we're hopping in a fairly regular way between the, the three perspectives. We start with Cleary, who I think is really the heart of the book. Um, he's nine years old, almost ten, as he tells himself. And he's from Dublin. He's been deaf for three years because he caught a superbug that that wiped out his hearing. So he's still adjusting to that and adjusting fairly well. He's a really smart kid, very watchful. He's a very good observer. And he's, I love him. He's a wry little character. He's very brave, um, quite an anxious disposition, but uh, really, I just really love him. I, I, think he's, I think he's gorgeous. He feels like a real person to me. So we see one third of this world is seen through a child's eyes. Billy is a woman in her late 20s. She's from Glasgow. I'm not going to try and do accents, but <laughs> they they all do have their, their speech patterns, which you might have not, noticed, Andrew, mm-hmm. given your day job. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is a bit, bit of a tough nut, a uh, bit of a loner, uh, quite a strong person, and very practical, very pragmatic. And she's escaping... Uh, a life of having worked in the hospital system in Glasgow where <clears throat> plagues are rampant. And so she's survived the death wards and has left that job under mysterious circumstances that we find out about later. She and Cleary end up uh, intersecting in uh, a, an important way 
a way that sort of holds the book together. And then there's Tom. He's from London. He's a school teacher in his early 30s. He's a fairly anxious character, uh, quite a gentle sort of person. A lot of self-doubt going on with Tom. He's not sure if he's in the right profession. He's not sure what he's going to do with his future. He's relying on his uh, prescription medication a little bit too heavily. Uh, but he comes into his own through through the journey and, and finds finds a reason to to stick around. He's uh, from a, quite a posh family, actually, but things collapsed economically, and so he's now finds himself, you know, working alongside people who are more of the working class. And in each of these characters on their own, we have... I guess the makings of, of a, an unreliable narrator and, and almost the way you triangulate their points of view allowed the, the story to emerge and emerge in this incredibly personal way. But I'd also be remiss if I didn't know that the world of a ship on the ocean is a really, it's an interesting set to cast your action. As we, as we watch Tom struggle to find privacy to tryst with a crew member, it seems this unbearably close space. We also see clearly that he must mark corridors so as to remember his way and, and remember safe passage. To a child, it's an expanse. What, mm. did, what did this space and what did these limitations mean for the story that you wanted to create? Well, it was an opportunity to have an imagined pressure cooker environment because, of course, when you're at sea, when you're out in the open sea, there's no escape. You can't escape the people around you. Uh, or not for long anyway, you're going to bump into each other again. So that created opportunities for people's paths to cross uh, just as they're going about their daily business, which is very handy for, uh, mechanism for a writer. Uh, I also, I, I'm glad that you picked that up about the ship, that it feels uh, cramped and uh, there's a lack of privacy, but it also feels a bit like a maze or a labyrinth. And... I did something really fun and interesting when I was writing the ship. I got a friend of mine who's actually a therapist and also a very talented novelist, John Bauer. He wrote a book called Rocks in the Valley a few years back. He hypnotized me and we explored the ship while I was under hypnosis. It was an experiment to see you know, how I could envisage this weird uh, space um, and tap into... Uh, I guess, a perspective that, that allows for a bit more creativity. So some of the, my writing of the ship came from that experience of being hypnotised and wandering its corridors and, and feeling uh, sort of lost and oppressed and uh, like I was caught in a labyrinth. I wondered also, I couldn't, I couldn't help but notice as I was doing my research in your bio that your academic research focuses on place, spatial justice and narratives of homelessness and... I see the ways that in a confined ship where you have certain areas that are restricted to crew, some people have all access, others are limited, mm. Um, mm. and essentially a, a group of people who are floating between uh, spaces that they would call home. You have this really interesting uh, psychological setting where people are trying to work out what is theirs, can they claim anything? Can they claim any spaces their own? Did you bring any of your, your research and your insights there to bear in the trespasses? I guess not deliberately, but it all came out of the same brain. So I, I, I guess it's not compartmentalised neatly. The things that fascinate me in the world 
are the things that I like to research and the things that I like to write about. So there's definitely some spillover there and I'm really interested in how space and place is divided up, who's allowed to go where, who's allowed to belong uh, and what are the sort of power dynamics of that. I find that really interesting to work with. And as you say, the ship is such a peculiar place. It's sort of an, it's a place but it's not a place and it's moving through the sea which is a place but not a place. So... It just allowed for all kinds of weird and wonderful uh, scenarios and dynamics to to play with. Now, as we enter the trespasses, we, we find ourselves very much and firmly in, I guess, what we would call speculative fiction. We have these elements that are just beyond our current experience. But then you also move but invert tropes around horror around mystery and one that I was particularly interested in that I felt like you were inverting is ideas of knowledge. We have two kind of climactic moments quite early in the book so I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything to tell people that someone is killed, uh, one of the crew is killed and then people start to fall ill and yet around this idea of knowledge the the silent, uh, well, the, the human killer is a relatively known commodity, at least for the reader. We have, mm. we have a semblance of that person. While the silent killer of illness remains stubbornly mysterious, we, mm. we know aspects of it, but we, we can't relate it to anything that is in our world. And I just wondered whether this was saying something about the ways that we deal with truth and facts and, and knowledge in our world, the way we, we deal with our everyday. I think that's a really interesting thing to pick up on. The, the horror of the virus that's present in this book is that it is unknown, that it is unseen, that we don't understand how it's, it's spread, we don't understand where it's come from, not in the beginning anyway. And I found myself, while writing the book, becoming very conscious of washing my hands, uh, not touching my face, and I, I became quite germ-conscious, or quite bug-conscious while I, I was writing it, because that is the horror aspect. We don't, it, we don't know what is going on below the level of sight, mm. uh, and I guess also the idea of, a, of an invader or a killer that invades the body, that, that passes through the boundary of the skin or the, the, <clears throat> the mouth or the nose and enters us without our permission, there's something quite horrifying about that and uh, I really, I played on that fear and while I was writing this book, Ebola was kind of Ebola virus was unfolding so while it's I mean you could call it speculative fiction that's technically accurate but you know most of the things in this book have already happened or are happening at the moment so the horror is it's not completely imaginary. It's also real and very, very possible. Knowledge and isolation, I found, were also really interestingly evoked, particularly through Cleary's perspective, in the ways that people would try to keep themselves safe. And effectively, whenever there was this threat of illness, people would don masks. We've, we know them. We've seen people on the street wearing them. But mm. for, for Cleary, that then effectively shut down his world the the limited ability he had to communicate and just interact was around his lip reading and so his mm. his world became silent and he was limited in his knowledge and the 
the limiting of his knowledge is central to the way the action plays out. And there are probably times in which things could have gone differently had he felt he could communicate. What, what interested you about that and that isolation of Cleary? Because it, it is horrific to see a child isolated mm. in that way. Mm. I guess it's the vulnerability. I wanted to emphasise the vulnerability of children and um, having that extra layer of access to the world removed by the fact that Cleary could no longer lip-read. He's really thrown... I mean, the poor kid, I shouldn't have done it to him. <laughs> but he's really thrown back on his own resources where he has to try and read body language, atmosphere, um, glances. He's, he becomes hyper-alert because he has to be watchful because the killer uh, knows who he is. Mm. And so he has knowledge that he feels unable to share because he's terrified and he has knowledge that other people don't know but he's unable to communicate it uh, until very late in the piece and he chooses a, an interesting way to do that. But yeah, so vulnerability of children and that being emphasised through Cleary's extra layer of, <clears throat> I guess, isolation from other people. The banality of evil, that was a phrase that frequently came to mind as I read. And at each stage of the book, I, I felt like we were confronted with, with actors who were more concerned with self than their, their interest in a sort of a greater good. So I'm not, I'm not going to go into spoilers here, even though it sounds like I might. <laughs> but we have, we have things like everything from the families that reject Cleary uh, at certain stages, the doctor who's more ready to mansplain everything than, than just sort of muck in and get, get the job done, all the way up to the hierarchies that only act out of personal expediency. The experience is pervasive, um, and I, I guess we, we do see this in our everyday, but I wondered what you saw, as you, if, you, if you saw, as you crafted your story, a way we might break from this pattern. Did you ever uh, see a turn you could take that might make people more open? Absolutely, and that comes in the, the love and the care that develops between the main characters and I guess that I wanted to emphasize that contrast that that while people can be can act out of fear as they do when they withdraw from Cleary they are afraid that they're going to catch something from him they can also act out of love and that and out of empathy and compassion and just human connection and kindness so Cleary finds that in Billy he throws himself on her mercy and although she has little to no experience with children, the relationship that develops between them is in stark contrast to some of the more <clears throat> selfish and venal uh, motivations in the book. And I should say, like, the overarching evil here is not just people doing bad things, but the treatment of people as units of... Uh, potential profit mm. and when their potential to generate profit disappears their value disappears and I was very interested in that because we do we see that playing out you know in workplaces we see that playing out in migration policy we see that playing out in so many spheres of our society so that evil you know is about valuing people for their utilitarian value, if you like, what yep. they can generate in terms of profits. 
I was really interested in the way you you juxtaposed exactly that that sort of evil of commodification against this this tight little uh, sort of trio. The they're not they're not a family in the conventional sense because Tom and Billy actually have very limited connection, but through Cleary they they are and. This, this movement, throughout the book, there are these movements between isolation and closeness. I've mentioned before how Cleary becomes isolated, but it felt like beyond even the sort of the political and social issues that you touch on, it was really the heart of the trespassers, the way we can bring those personal moments together. Hmm. I, I think so. And I think it also manifests, hopefully, in Billy, who is uh, press-ganged into uh, caring for the sick, along with, you know, other passengers who are forced to do the job. While it's forced upon them, there is still a, a tenderness and a kindness and a caring in that gruelling work. I mean, she, at, at one point, Tom is, finds himself embarrassed because he remembers that Billy, when he was really sick, was catching his vomit in a bucket, you know. And... You know, I don't know how nurses do it. They're incredible, mm. incredible people. Uh, so they've had this uh, unwanted intimacy, you know, where she's been wiping people's asses, she's been cleaning up their vomit, but she's also been keeping them alive in a very fundamental way, struggling to do so anyway. So I, I guess... It's about when you're thrown into a horrific situation, it's a real test of character. And what can emerge very often is is absolute humanity and care and kindness. Mm. Yes, yeah, so B- Billy is a nurse, Tom is a teacher, and I assumed, but I, I had no way to confirm this, but they are, for my mind, I think two of just the most amazing professions that we can lay claim to as, as humanity. Um, there must have been a reason you, you chose them to be your your point of views. Well, I guess as as um as the other doctor, the second doctor reminds Billy, she's not actually a nurse. She's a she's a I guess a nurse's aide or in the hospital orderly. You know, mm. we might call them. So there's that status kind of battle going on with him. He's a bit of a dickhead, Owen. Um, but yes, I mean. Back on the time, if I can bring it back to the historical shit that this that really inspired this story for me, on the Ticonderoga, the migrant workers were coming over to Victoria to uh, rescue the wool clip. They were needed to work as domestic servants and in the and in the wool industry because half of Victoria literally had run off to the goldfields. Mm. So, on that ship, they brought their children along, and the the children had lessons while they were at sea. Um, so there was a teacher there and of course there was a ship's doctor and the second ship's doctor. So those were almost ready-made, uh, professions. And what appealed to me about them is that they're connecting, they're connecting roles, Mm. you know, um, a, a doctor or a nurse is someone who tends to a great variety of people and must also deal with the families of the sick. Uh, and a teacher, likewise, uh, Tom comes to protect the children under his care and try and distract them from the horror that's unfolding around them and then must also deal with the parents. So they're, 
they're really interesting, um, I guess, archetypes in that they they have these connections with a broad range of people that provide a lot of narrative fuel. Um, both my parents are teachers, so I'm kind of familiar with that world mm. on a personal level. Uh, and I have a cousin who's a senior nurse who helped advise on some of the uh, aspects of um, you know disease containment. But nursing is not, it's not something I could ever do. And ambulance. Uh, Attendants and nurses, I just and vets, I take my hat. I take all my hats off to them. I don't know how they do it. It's amazing. Yeah, my my mum's a nurse and my wife's a teacher, so I. Oh I, really? I, oh. I have the utmost respect. I think they're just two of the most amazing professions, and we're just lucky to have yeah. them. Yeah, and two of the most undervalued and underpaid too, uh, incidentally. Um, but yeah, they're they're crucial. They're crucial roles. So. Within this personal environment of the steadfast, of the narrative of the book, um, you have, you've woven in elements of this historical narrative. There are also more contemporary elements that people, that readers will recognise. The book is a veritable piñata of issues around conservative governance and the sort of near future, I, I think, social collapse. I was interested, there's a subtle comment that I'm not going to repeat, um, mm. near the very end of the book, uh, mm. I can allude to it a bit <laughs> if you need, but <laughs> I, I, I really wondered from what it showed me whether you yourself had any definite ideas about the modern resonance of these issues and how, how you balanced your personal feelings with the narrative that you wanted to create. Well, the story has to come first. It has to be a good story. It has to work for as many readers as possible. I don't write thinking of the ideal reader. I just write the story. The st- I write at the service of the story. And so I'm very careful not to be didactic about my own beliefs. I hope that someone who has very different beliefs can also read this book and see echoes of their own experience, perhaps their own family histories at play within it and... and through the characters get immersed in that. I, my own, I do have fairly strong views on a lot of this stuff, and but what I've tried to do is to, I guess, put the reader in the in the skin of different characters and perhaps wonder, well, what would I do, you know, in this situation, uh, and to feel it rather than to intellectualize it, to, to do it through emotion rather than uh, you know, pure cognition, if there is any such thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I try to just signal little, little images from our Australia's recent history and just plant them in the book as little recognition points so that if readers did care to make the connection, it was there for them to do so without being hammered over the head with it. It must have made it difficult, though, at times, particularly around some climactic decisions. What's that? Uh, difficult? In what way? I'm trying to... I'm try- I, I know. I'm trying to... Yeah. Give me a little clue. Give me a this little is, hint. <laughs> this, is, this is where uh, it all falls apart when I'm trying to be too obtuse <laughs> around spoilers. I know. I love that, though. I really do appreciate that. <laughs> but you just got to give me a little bit more. Dear listener... <laughs> Dear listener, so I'm on the same page to say that terrible. <laughs> we, we are we are currently well. I mean, I guess we're almost on the final page of of the book. If uh, people are reading oh. along, when we we discover 
certain things about fate. And I'm, I'm thinking just about characters now. Um, I'm gonna, oh, I'll tell you, I'll tell, when, we're, when, we're, when we're off recording, I'm going to tell you exactly what I meant. <laughs> but, oh, I've, I've actually, you've just gone very fuzzy there, Meg. I think the, the recording doesn't want to reveal spoilers either. And now I've lost you. Meg, can you hear me at all? I can now. Sorry, we must have had bad air. Um, sorry, yeah. what was, did you say? Meg, Meg was just driving through a metaphorical tunnel that avoids spoilers <laughs> in an interview. <laughs> I promise it was real. My phone, your voice just brambled. <laughs> but no, I'm happy to answer the question. I think, are you alluding to the surprise thing that happens at the end? Near uh, the end? Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, look, I, I hope I leave some room for doubt there, if we're talking about the same thing. You don't. But, <laughs> I felt no, I was bereft. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It is. I, I actually made myself cry writing a, a few of the lines near the last few pages, which is not something that normally happens when I'm writing, so... Yeah, that was hard. It was, I, I, I kind of feel guilty about it for putting my characters through that. Um, but it's a weird, mysterious process. Honestly, we don't know where these things come from. Um, but again, the story has to come first. Mm. It is a completely emotional and engaging book. We're talking about The Trespassers from Meg Mundell. I've got Meg on the line. Meg, thank you so much for taking the time in a, in a book like The Trespassers where there is so much to discuss and engage with, but also so much you don't want to reveal to those yet to read it. You have done a beautiful job. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you, you know, that you get the book, that you're interested in it and that you made, you know, gave time to speak to me. That's it for this great conversation with Meg Mundell. Meg's new novel is The Trespassers, and it's out now through University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You just look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you click subscribe in your podcast app, you will get a new great conversation every week. That's more Australian books, more Australian writers, more things to read. <laughs> My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. And until then, wish you happy reading. Bye now.